Welcome to Sandbox Cooperative. I'm Dave. And I'm Chris. And this is episode 10. Welcome to the Sandbox. Hey, welcome back to the Sandbox Cooperative Podcast. We are so excited to be here with you. And uh, we just wanted to lift up as we get started our next Sandbox Cooperative live event. So that's going to be on November 22nd. And uh, we're bringing in musician Heather Lynn, and she's from, from the Minneapolis area. She's going to be talking about a little bit of her music as an expression of uh, faith and how uh, her creativity is kind of tied in with that faith journey. Uh, we're just so excited to have her join us. And uh, if, you're, if you're looking to participate, if you're in the Rochester, Minnesota area, you can join us downtown at Studio 324. Um, the event starts at 7 o'clock. And if you are online, maybe you live further away from us and you're unable to make it to the live event, uh, you can check that out by visiting sandboxcooperative.com and that live stream will start at seven o'clock. And from there, you can ask questions, engage with us and all those sorts of things. Man, she is an incredible talent and I can't wait to both meet her and, and hear the things that she has to say. And you were talking about people tuning in from wherever they are. What I think at the last event, we had 15, 16 different states people from different states tuning in, being a part of the conversation, and we look forward to more of that with with Heather Lynn. Yeah, and the more people that are listening, the more people that are engaging with us, the better questions we get, the better questions she answers. So we just really invite you to, on again, on November 22nd, check that out with us. You know, every now and then, you meet somebody. And you meet somebody, and you just, within a couple minutes of, of talking, you're like, wow, this person's a deep well. They've got a story, and, and I need to hear more. couple, I don't know what, actually about a about month, a month ago, ago now, Chris and Karsten, our producer, and I, we, we were in California, and I was sitting in this, I don't know, it was a comedy club or wherever we were. I turned around, I met this guy, and instantly wanted to know more, asked him if he would be a part of our podcast, and then he came to our, our little studio, makeshift studio that we had set up, and proceeded to effectively blow our minds. <laughs> and uh, yeah, it was, a, it was a conversation which, uh, which definitely definitely moved, moved the three of us for sure. Yeah, I, he, so we'll get into his story a little bit here, but um, he just has such a, a diverse history of experiences. And uh, for me, it was really fascinating just listening to him talk about the way that his faith shifted a little bit throughout this this journey um you know he comes from a a, a certain tradition and and certain set of experiences and the way that uh i think you know god was opening him up to these different things that he was seeing and learning and experiencing and and the the person that he's become now just soaking up everything around him is is fascinating to me absolutely and you know as a as a podcast if you've been listening to us for any length of time you've heard a shift in and how we're we're approaching different topics and different subject matters, we've come to see ourselves as agents of curiosity in the chaos of evolving life and faith. And as agents of curiosity, when we encounter something that we we find fascinating, we want to share it with you and 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 kind of get into the stories and get into the subject matter. And so that's what we're doing with with Paul F- Phillips and 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 his story. Yeah, so uh, here's one of those episodes. We're not exactly sure what to say. Uh, we don't know what to think of his story yet. We just find it fascinating. We want to share it with you. And it's going to take a little bit longer. And and we've prided ourselves. We have been so proud that we've been able to keep every episode around a half hour. 
This will be a little bit longer than most, but we think uh, it's just that important and, and that you need to hear the story. So enjoy. I'd like to introduce uh, Paul Phillips, who is a student at the Hatchery, and we're about to hear some of his his story about identity and his journey in life. Welcome, Paul. All right. Thanks a lot. Appreciate you having me. You were telling a story about kind of like coming together uh, with, with, with you and your wife around identity. I just I want to, I'd love to hear that story. Okay. Um, our, our story actually, um, I have to give you some background on myself and then okay. bring her in later. But um, I, I grew up a Pentecostal minister's kid. My dad pastored in Assemblies of God Church um, in Santa Ana in Orange County. Yeah. And um, we were the top missions giving church. So we had missionaries in and out of our house all the time um, and uh, big missions conferences. And then my dad started a Bible translation organization. My mom started a child sponsorship organization. And being from that world, um, we were we were instilled in the with this idea that we were the Levite class, and um, as a ministerial family, and the Levite class was responsible for the other you know eleven tribes and the whole success of the entire nation, you know, that sort of thing. So there was just a little bit of pressure to perform on the outside, um, and so the interior. Uh, the family was always kept uh, somewhat private from public consumption. So, and of course, you know, like most ministerial families, like, you know, it's, there's a lot more going on on the inside than now. And uh, so I grew up in that world, uh, having Bible translators and people from all over the world in, in my house, my aunts and uncles were people from, um, my uncle Colton was from Sri Lanka and my uncle Dakao was from Fiji. Okay. Uh, right. And, yeah, and then yeah. one of my dearest, uh, family, you know, friends was Elijah from Nepal and then, uh, uh, Joyce from Brazil and all that. Yeah. So I didn't even you know, have... I didn't know my actual family who was in the South in a trailer park in, in Mississippi. Right. I right. never knew them. Right. Um, yeah. The United Nations going on. Yeah. House. Yeah, I did. <laughs> wow. And then my parents were from the South and then I, I grew up in Orange County. Mm. So I, you know, we swam in the poo and, um, <laughs> and we ate grits and, you know, my, my, my friends thought, my mother was hysterical. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, uh, you know, it, she, she, she may have come off as just as foreign as some of the people yeah. who were living in your house. Yeah. Time. My parents were really bizarre, yeah. you know, for, for, you know, like my, my, my friend's parents were, you know, they would go ride dirt bikes in the desert and, mm-hmm. you know, go to angels games and go to the beach. And my, my parents sat around restaurants and talked you know, after church wearing yeah. suits and ties and, you know, like my mom had like a Zsa Gabor wig, you know, and stuff like that. <laughs> so anyway, one of the weirder aspects of my family is my parents actually helped start the first Christian television station in Southern California with Paul and Jan Crouch and uh, the Bakers. Okay. So that gives you a little bit of a sense of the bizarre world that, that I started universe. life in. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. I thought it was normal. You know, mm-hmm. I thought we were famous. It was really funny. You thought you were what? Famous. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Like we were driver because we had a, like a postcard of my family, a picture postcard <laughs> of my family. Like you do. Yeah. <laughs> Sit, like boxes of them sitting around my house. So I just assumed we were famous. Yeah. <laughs> but um, anyway, growing up in that world, I, I wound up uh, moving to Texas, mega church in Texas, high school, you know, big, big, huge youth group. 
Um, I carried my Bible to school um, and then wound up in at Oral Roberts University, um, married my sweetheart from ORU and um, started in missions work. And, and within, that, and that's your life. I mean, that that's yeah. probably the life that you always saw yourself right leading. Yeah, you're the Levite class. You know, yeah. it's like you have a responsibility. Mm-hmm. You know, this is, and of course, you know, the world's going to hell. So, you know, yeah. we had to make sure as few people went as possible. You know, right. Um, right. And you know, oh well, some people don't make it. You know, that sort of thing. You, know, <laughs> you just got to go with the numbers. So, uh, <laughs> so we. Um, we went uh, a couple of years together, you know, um, you know, did the traditional things, started having kids a couple of years into the marriage and we were ministry family. And then it, it, it was just totally effed up. And in so many ways um, to have um, to be always presenting this public image and never dealing with family of origin issues or anything like that. So like one of the first, one of the first books I read after, or you was Philip Yancey's disappointment with God. And it it was the very first time that I discovered that God actually needed me. Mm. Um, I I wept in bed when I read uh, one of the, one of his lines was talking about God actually needing our passion, our love. Mm. And, and that's, the reason for God's incredible action and, and, you know, the effort of the incarnation was because he needed our love. I never even heard of that. Yeah. And then a couple of books later, um, Philip Yancey wrote, what's so amazing about grace. I'd never heard of grace. I, I didn't know what yeah. it was. I knew it was in a song, yeah. but I had no idea what the concept. Wow. And, uh, that, that was pretty mind blowing, but I, I had, I had actually spun out of missions work, spun, uh, was in the process of spinning out of church um, went to work for BMW because I'm a car guy, and um, and uh, kind of had a crisis of faith uh, uh, after reading Philip Yancey's work um, because I I didn't have an image of God that was lining up with my life experiences at that point. So learning about how word becomes flesh and having it always be that way, right? God seeking to be embodied and, and being embodied in us was a radical new concept for you. Grace, something that you were completely unfamiliar with. And the idea of grace, once that started to sink in, actually caused a crisis of faith where you didn't feel like you belonged. Yeah, um, one, of the, one of the key moments was my, my junior high um, my junior high friend, uh, Tom and I, we, we met in, in eighth grade mm-hmm. at a church retreat. And, you know, my first thought when I saw him was, was the kid was totally gay. And, mm-hmm. and, um, but the other, the other boys in the camp were just not really all that fun to talk to. And he was actually pretty enjoyable to talk to. And we got to become really good friends. And then I kind of tried to forget that he was most likely gay. Mm-hmm. And, um, and we, we continued on our friendship all the way through ORU. And then when he finally came out, I actually threw him out of my own wedding. He was going to be my best man. Mm. So I threw him out of my wedding because he didn't believe in marriage, you know? Um, Mm. so he had gone through, uh, you know, horrendous family life and all kinds of, all kinds of things. And we'd really bonded during his struggles. Um, you know, dad was in prison and all kinds of stuff. Mm. So, uh, he was my dearest friend and I kicked him out of my own wedding. So there was, there was part of me that was like being the correct Pharisee. And then there was this other part of me that was like, 
this feels absolutely wrong. And prior to me kicking out of the wedding, my parents had forbidden me to hang out with them. Okay. So we actually did take our, our friendship underground for years. Mm. So we'd meet at movie theaters and go to a movie or, you know, meet at like Taco Bell or something instead of him coming over and spending the night or, or being a part of my family anymore. So for you, your, your, your Christian identity was all about appearances. Right. Completely. Right. Completely. So um, <clears throat> with, with that, when I threw him out of my wedding and then got married... Um, you know, and he wasn't at my wedding, you know, that was disturbing to me, but Mm -hmm. so there was this tension between feeling like I'd done what was morally right and what I'd done was really quite shitty, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. As a friend. And so when I, when I encountered Philip Yancey's book and he, he was talking about Mel White and his friendship with Mel White, Mm -hmm. I was really challenged by that to look at my behavior differently. So I started, I actually started praying for a couple of years. And at this time, you know, I'm spinning out of church. I'm working for BMW. And um, um, his name came across my desk and we um, rekindled our friendship. Uh, I called him up and I said, look, I've read this book. I'm deeply sorry for what I did. You know, please forgive me. And he was, you know, totally cool. Forgive me within two minutes. And we were wow. back to being great friends and we're still great friends today. He's, he's one of my, my absolute dearest friends, a person I call um, the absolute model of grace, right, the absolute model of grace. So one of the, one of the funniest moments is going back to Texas. Um, when I finally got to see him again and I'm like, Tom, I'm in Dallas, you know, when do you want to get together? And, um, he goes to the big, or he used to go to the big metropolitan community church there in Dallas. I can't oh, yeah, remember yeah. the name of it. So he's like, well, I go to church on Wednesday nights or you can see me on Thursday. What do you want to do? I'm like, well, I'm here. Let's get together Wednesday night. So I go to church. Um, we sit in the back row and, um, and I'm sitting there and it's gay pride month. And so they did two things. They did a tribute to Judy Garland cause I guess she'd recently died. Yeah. And then they did a documentary on the Stonewall rebellion. Oh wow. And he turned to me and he goes, this is the gayest service we've ever had. <laughs> <laughs> and then you're, and you're with me. <laughs> you're, 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 you're at, it's gay pride at an MCC church. Right. Yeah. That's fantastic. Yeah. So uh, the the greatest thing was uh, communion came and there was the pastor was there. She was uh, lesbian woman, all dressed. She had a purple T-shirt and like black leather chaps and like a black leather Harley vest, you know. And and so she's talking about how much she thanks God every day that she's gay because she has the opportunity to extend grace to assholes like like me, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> like I had been to Tom. Yeah. And and so. You know, and then she serves communion and we all walk up and this is the first time I've ever been in an environment that serves communion in this way where we all line up and go together. And it's just this. So as we get up by the bread and the wine, Tom points to the right and he goes, normally I sit here with my friends so we can check out all the guys. Right. (laughs) (laughs) So he's like, I sat you in the back to be merciful. I was like, "Eh, you know, thank you. (laughs) I appreciate that. So that was my first, that was, that was my first, um, real fissure in, Mm. in my, uh, in, in my faith, you know, it was to, to realize it's, you know, it's more about me actually being a, a a loving, kind neighbor and friend than following the rules. Mm -hmm. So, um, Anyway, I spun I uh, I spun out of church shortly after that. Um, actually, I got kicked out of church, um, 
and didn't go for about six years. You got kicked out of church. I got kicked out of church. Um, it was a it was a long long story, but anyway, my my best friends uh, at the time had volunteered to teach you the youth, and then. Um, didn't like they decided I we're not getting paid it's too much work so yeah. I volunteered I was reading Martin Luther's commentary on Galatians okay so I volunteered to teach Martin Luther's commentary on Galatians to a bunch of skaters okay and so that's what I did and I tried to Martin Luther it up uh-huh. you know and, yeah. and, and, <laughs> and and you know it, there's a lot of people that realize how incredibly body uh, you know Martin Luther was so absolutely I enjoyed yeah. I enjoyed making these little skater kids you um, get shocked you know at, at, talking about fart you know his uh, his fart commentaries and and yeah you know <laughs> throwing inkwells and yeah yeah I I love that there's a I think there's a generator for Martin Luther inserts uh, or insults uh, you know there's an app you know you, you, right. you enter something in and it spits out a Martin Luther insult so yeah yeah yeah, yeah so you can feel you feel good that <laughs> so you're being a good Christian yeah. while you do it yeah so so um, with that um, they actually walked in on a Sunday there was a whole church campaign like gossip campaign and then and yeah. then my best friend literally walked into my class on a Sunday morning and told me that the leadership had decided I needed to leave. So um, I think the biggest issue was I used the word crap too much. And, okay. um, and uh, I, I, I talked about let your sins be strong. It's like, hey, if you don't actually have faith, you know, go, go experience the world, figure out what sin's all about, you know. Yeah. But have your own faith. Don't, don't be like sucking off your mom and dad's, uh, your dad's faith and showing up and pretending so that was another th- that was a major theme of the of of my teaching was don't pretend that you're something that you're not be what you are yeah. and and live it out honestly and that was really disturbing to a lot of the parents um that was apparently more than they could bear yeah, what's that that was more than they could bear that was yeah it definitely because mm-hmm. they would come and sit in the class and then like go out and leave they would like talk to the leadership but not talk to me you know that sort of thing but you know i've been raised um my my dad's church had split. Uh, I found out recently split seven times by the time I was fourteen years old. So oh, wow. I knew, and at the fiftieth anniversary of his church, there were fifty four pastors in the program. Jeez, yeah, and he had pastored <laughs> he had pastored for seventeen years. Oh, so goodness. the the di- he tells us he used to tell the story of uh, he's passed on now, but uh, he used to tell the story of him taking his pulpit. Uh, moving from Florida to California and moving into his office and finding a bug that led to a reel-to-reel tape recorder in the uh, janitor's office. What? Yeah. And that was one of his first improvement projects on the church was removing the bugs out of the Debugging the place. Debugging the pastor's office. Unbelievable. Yeah. Wow. So so I I knew how to have a church fight. Yeah, right, right. right. I, I knew how to hit way below the belt mm-hmm. and stuff like that. So, uh, like, not as I'm telling you the story, I'm not, I'm not the victim in the story. I, I, right. I, no. I, I knew how to, uh, you know, crotch shots, whatever, whatever it took. I was, <laughs> I was like, so I fought my way out. Yeah. You know, I made sure I burned every bridge, you know, and all that. And and it was a small town um, in Northern California. By that point, I'd moved uh, from Texas, but. Um, so I spun out. I didn't go to church. I figured it's better to raise my kids outside of church than in the church, the very toxic church environment that I grew up in. Right. It would be smarter. 
and my kids can can grow up honestly you know so I have I have four children. Um, so they were all small at that time. I was homeschooling, uh, you know, all this. So anyway, um, I wound up uh, going to work for Porsche and Lotus, and I was at the Button Willow race cr- racetrack in, in north of LA, and I sold cars at the track. That was I sold Lotus cars primarily. Okay. So I we would go racing, uh, part of the Lotus Challenge series. We would go racing together, and then. Um, I would make friends. And so it was relationship-based mm-hmm. sales. It's it's a small community of people that like to race these cars. Sure. So uh, it was like July 2008, um, and I, I'm photographing the guys on the last corner before the street, and um, I kind of had this moment. Maybe I was dehydrated, a long, hot weekend in July, you know. Mm-hmm. But I'm like, you know, God, my marriage is crap. Um, you know, I'm away from my family. Um, my job, even though it's a dream job, isn't working out so well. You know, I was having all mm-hmm. these thoughts. And I, I just kind of went out loud. I said, my my life has been reduced to photographing rich men driving around in circles. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. Um, in, in, you know, very nice cars that they were yeah. doing it. But, yeah. but I, it, th- this sudden purposelessness hit right. me. And I just prayed. I was like, whatever it takes for you to make me more serious, please do it. Um, but I can't, I can't uproot. I, I've worked so hard to get to this point. I'm not going to uproot it. Right. And so the global economy collapsed by September. So it was possibly my fault. I don't know. <laughs> so it's you. <laughs> it <was me. laughs> what? It so, um, so I lost my job. Uh, I lost my my mm. marriage a, uh, almost a year to date later. But uh, lost my job, separated, um, and uh, was desperately looking for work. And then was pulled back into my mom's child sponsorship ministry. Okay. Um, as a as a web designer, photographer, writer, all the things I had done in the past, even for my even for my my car job, I was doing those things. Sure, I was pulled back in with the challenge of, can you please write the stories of all our African kids and who have grown up and become pastors and stuff like that? Mm-hmm. And I'd known these lo- these kids when I was in in college, but I didn't know them anymore. They had all grown up, and now they had started schools and orphanages and all this. So. Um, being a conniving like Jacob like person because that's what you are when you're like the little brother in the yeah right. the youngest yeah. kid in a ministry family where right. your parents are totally checked out all the time you learn how to get what you want right uh-huh. so I'm like you know, my, my parents had always promised my my kids that they would take them on a missions trip now they're too old so I'm like you need to take them on a missions trip but you're too you know you're too old uh, so why don't you let me take them? So what we did was we scheduled a two and a half month trip across East Africa to check on the schools okay. with a 10 day detour in Europe. Right. Okay. So we went to, <laughs> we met some friends in Paris we spent seven days in Paris. We went to, uh, Istanbul and, and England and, wow. and Frankfurt, Germany. And, and, uh, uh um, we were in, or somewhere in Italy, um, I'll remember it a bit. So anyway, we had this great trip yeah. together where we had never gotten to travel before, and suddenly we're traveling, uh, you know, doing backpacking with my my fourteen year old, my my fifteen year old. Wow. Um, so anyway, we wound up in Rwanda, 
Well, to shorten up the story, we wound up walking into a classroom. What, what year was this? Uh, uh, 2009. That was two, a year, Fall of year 2009. after that experience. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, it was actually exactly a year. It was yeah. uh, October. Uh-huh. So um, we walk in to this classroom, and I see this incredibly beautiful woman with a baby on her back teaching, teaching school. And, um, you know... Uh, Rwanda is distinctly different. Like every country in Africa is distinctly different. The people look different. You know, the tribal groups look different. So um, uh, Rwandans are striking. They they have a very uh, different um, uh, genetic pool that they're drawing from than their neighbors. Sure. Um, so uh, I walked in. I was I was I was really impressed. And mm-hmm. so. My wife, the, this turned out to be my wife. Sorry, I blew the story already. Um, she uh, she turned out to be our translator. She was Ugandan. She spoke English. Um, the Rwandese had kicked had, had kicked the French to the curb, and, mm-hmm. and they wanted English-speaking uh, teachers because they were switching over to English as their official language. Okay. They were mad at the, the French after the genocide. Sure. So the... the um, Hope wound up being uh, my translator for two weeks. So we wound up discovering a lot of corruption and things in the school that, uh, and this was part of the course, every school that I'd been to was just eaten alive with corruption okay. from the top. Um, money not going to the right place, uh, you know, strange things happening, kids telling odd stories. You know, um, and it's a child sponsorship program. I'm there to get happy stories, and I'm getting not. I'm getting. getting I'm getting odd stories, right? Yeah. So, um, we wound up uh, uh, really developing a relationship over the fact that all the teachers had not been paid, and the school director who I helped get sponsors for when I when he was a kid, like okay. I remember him in rags, like after the war in in Uganda in 1986. Uh-huh. It was when we got started. He was in rags and came out of the bush, you know, begging uh-huh. for food. And so mm-hmm. we had pictures of him getting food off of a truck, right? When he was a kid, now he's a right. pastor with a big gut, okay. right? Yeah. So it's no longer distended, you know, belly from malnutrition. It's overnutrition. Right. And over there, if you have a gut, it's, they have a saying is, is uh, he ate the money. Wow. Right. So, okay. so the size of mm-hmm. the size of an African will tell you their socioeconomic status. Right. So, any sort of American gut is uh, is a telltale sign that somebody's consuming more calories than than yeah, the rest of the should. village, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, anyway, um, we we got together uh, talking about that issue. I went back to the U.S., found out uh, my wife had filed for divorce while I was gone which was actually a major answer to prayer. Um, So um, she had walked away from her faith like six years earlier and it had been a lot of tension. And um, at one point during, during marriage counseling, I was like, well, if Jesus can't make you happy, how the heck am I going to do it? (laughs) So how'd that conversation go? (laughs) She she actually thought it was funny. That that was endearing to her. You know, it's like, yeah, I guess you're right. You know, I got to stop complaining so much if, yeah. So, um, so anyway, um, she's a good mom and, uh, we have four kids together. Mm-hmm. So, um, but with that, that coming back, um, I was now, I, I w- there was a moment 
okay, the divorce happened. I, I, I desperately wanted to get back and spend time with her. Yeah. So once again, the Jacob thing, like kicking in. Yeah. I'm like, Hey, I really didn't get my work done. I need to go back. And one of, one of the missionaries I work with, he, he, he told me, he said, look, you can't do what you're doing, which is every couple of years come, tell these guys that you're coming and then expect that you're going to find out what's really going on. You need to have somebody on the ground 24-7 watching what's going on. Mm-hmm. And he said in a school environment, you need to have, have somebody who works for you only to check out the schools and go to go to to the defense of the children to talk to the teachers not always just communicating with the people who are handling the money at the top mm-hmm. i thought that was really good advice so i actually hired my wife hope to come work with us and and said so you're just, she was a compassion international kid okay so she spoke multiple languages compassion international experience being a, an aids orphan so we hired her, and she, um, her job was to go around and photograph all the children, get to know every single kid in every single school, and find out their story. Okay. Find out how things were going on. So it was a really good plan. It yeah. lasted for two whole months. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, she, um, uh, we wound up getting fired, basically, okay. um, um, because of uh, we were exposing corruption and um, the corruption because I came from a ministerial family that, you know, you keep things hidden on the inside and you make things glossy on the outside. Um, uh, that wasn't glossy. You know, that wasn't yeah. looking good. So that put a lot of tension between me and my family and actually broke my family. Um, mm. So broke myself away from my mom, my dad, my brother, who wanted to continue things status quo. And I wanted accountability practices and principles. So that that tension came up once again um, yeah. uh, at that point. Yeah, yeah. Um, my wife's story is uh, she was an AIDS orphan, and her she grew up at the border of Rwanda, Congo, and Uganda. Okay. So those three countries come together in a place called Kasoro, which is right where Diane Fossey was doing all her work. Okay. So Diane Fossey's volcano that she did most of her living and working on was about uh, two volcanoes down from my wife's volcano that she grew up on the side of growing potatoes uh, on the Aberdeen Rift. Okay. Um, so she was a prostitute's kid. She was a, her very earliest memories were um, if my mom gets a guy, we eat. If she doesn't get a guy, we dig in the garbage. So that was her, those, those are her very earliest memories of her mother. Mm. Then um, she's spent, uh, she was taken away from her mom by an aunt to Congo. She walked about 135 kilometers into Congo um, as a small child. She doesn't doesn't have any idea how old she really was at this time. Um, When they arrived, uh, this, this aunt's husband had abandoned them. And now they were the wrong tribal group in the midst of another tribal group that was rumored to be cannibalistic. So they would lock themselves in their house about six o'clock at night and not come out. So they were trying to eke out a living from the land in, in that ostracized, yeah. you know, from their, that group. So my wife contracted uh, elephantiasis. She also contracted uh, a sand parasite called jiggers. Yes. Um, so jiggers looks like, par- uh, looks like leprosy um, when you see somebody who's infected. So it, with a... Uh, a very intense infection the the feet will turn out 
and you can you can actually die from jiggers uh, okay. eventually. So the feet will turn out, and you'll become uh, disabled, um, unable to walk. So elephantitis plus the feet turning out covered mm -hmm. in jiggers, the buttocks, the elbows, the knees, the the feet, the hands. Um, that aunt took her to a witch doctor who put slits in her legs to release spirits with a mm. razor blade. Mm. Um, so going through that experience, another aunt heard a rumor that she wasn't doing so well, came, uh, walked into Congo, found her, and then walked her out. And she was such a sight that they had to travel at night. Um, they couldn't actually travel during the day and they couldn't stay with anyone um, because she was, she, she was so frightening in her appearance. So um, when she got back to Kasoro, her, her aunt put her in a, in, in a house and locked her in a room for six months and they picked the sand fleas out of her with a needle uh, one by one. So for six months she was so, she was so uh, scabbed over and looking so bad that they didn't want to let her out of the house. So she she recovered from the elephantiasis and the jiggers, and then they were back to subsistence living. You know, it's mm -hmm, mm -hmm. the problem with that area of the world is women are so poor that they they turn to um, prostitution, outright prostitution, or um, a problem that's it's epidemic and in uganda rwanda sugar daddies so you'll have like five or six men who take care of your immediate needs um one pays the rent one brings you beans you know mm -hmm. and uh you don't really have any rights to say <clears throat> i want protection you just have to do what you have to do so the cycle is uh, uh sugar daddies and prostitution that leads to hiv the mom becomes weak, the mom becomes anybody unable to work, depending more on the sugar daddies, um, then develops full-blown AIDS, then dies, leaves daughters without an education, without a sugar daddy to take care of them, and the cycle it continues. It perpetuates itself. Right. right. So with, uh, with that cycle, my wife is in that cycle. So mm -hmm. she lost her mom, then she lost the next aunt, and the next aunt, and then the next cousin, and the next cousin. And um, with each successive group of kids going to the next cut, so each woman had more and more children to take care mm -hmm. of until finally they were, they were out of adults. Mm -hmm. So her older cousin so turned to... The whole generation right, disappears. Right. Yeah. So she has like seven little cousins on the floor of the, like a 10 by 10 little room with a, one bed mm -hmm. and uh, the older cousin working as a prostitute. Um, so the client was on the bed and the kids were on the floor and the cousins were doing, doing her best to feed them all. So that's, so while I'm growing up in Southern California in a five bedroom house with three, uh, three car garage and a swimming pool and three TVs and yeah. going out to eat all the time and all that, she's, this is her this parallel, is her reality. yeah, parallel life on the other side of the planet. Um, so she she was actually um sponsored by compassion international under under some pretty interesting situations she got uh she got sponsored in getting sponsored she got uh food and she got clothing and she got an education that was great except for the fact that they still had to walk seven kilometers to get their water 
and they couldn't collect water during the day because they would get raped or beaten. So all the girl, the young girls from the village would get together at three in the morning. And, you know, this is barefoot on volcanic rock. They would walk seven kilometers to a riverbed, mm-hmm. dig a hole, and then with a coffee mug, fill up a, a jerry can and then mm-hmm. try to carry that jerry can back barefoot in the cold. It's like San Francisco cold, right. you know, with, right. with sharp volcanic rocks and they're barefoot and they got to carry these enormous jerry cans and they're, they're barely, they're working on an all starch diet, usually a cassava root, right. you know, eating one a day or, you know, they would cook, they would sometimes get beans and cook the beans and then have the beans for a month. So they would scrape off the white mold from the beans and then eat them again the next day. So <clears throat> she she has a story of one time um, they they got food, but they didn't have any firewood, and it was rainy season, so they actually broke the door off their hut. And the girls broke the door off their hut and, and cooked the food with the front door, and but then they had no front door. <laughs> and they didn't have any adults to help them build a door. So they just hung a blanket and just froze from that point on. Wow. Then no mattress. They would sleep on the floor and build a fire, and then... Like they would all snuggle up to the fire and then they would catch their, their bedclothes or their, they would make a mattress out of bean husks. And so the, the flour sack that they're sleeping on full of bean husks would ignite while they're all trying to sleep on the same, same little mattress, you know? So this was her life. Yeah. Right. So compassion picks her up. She's going to school every day, but because she's been walking at three o'clock in the morning, and trying to cook and trying to, uh, my wife and my sister-in-law, they have no nerves in their, they have very little nerves in their palms. Okay. Because they would go borrow burning coals from their neighbors, put wet leaves in their hands and then run back home, trying to block the wind from, from really, you know, getting those embers going. Yeah. And try and get it to their fire in time before, so that they would be running with a burning hot ember in their hand and try and get it to the charcoal stove in time to to get their food cooking you know so this is this is their life this is their life this is completely their life and, and when they tell these stories they laugh like crazy <laughs> these are so funny to them you know the, like you know they run two kilometers and then drop the burning hot ember in a puddle you know and then have to do it again <laughs> you know so um so she compassion not compassion being compassion you know they're they're feeding educating all that but not being fully aware of the entire spectrum of problems she would go to school and fall asleep okay so then teachers would get her sister was was not as charming as my wife so my wife would would use her charm to get out of the beatings but her sister was more like you know f you sort of attitude yeah so yeah. she would get the crappy out of her by these by these schoolmasters for falling asleep constantly in school so she decided, screw this, I'm going to get married. And okay. she was like 14 years old. Okay. So she got married at 14 and immediately had three children um, to, to escape, to have a family, to have a man to take care of her. Um, my wife went through compassion, got trained as a teacher, and that's how she wound up in Uganda teaching school. Wow. So when I showed up, uh, she'd never taught school before, and she had no idea what she was doing. But uh, she'd been certified as a teacher in Uganda, so um, so that's how we met. Um, huh. Then um, you're gonna have fun editing this. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the the other 
when we came together and we actually started getting to know each other, um, you know, the differences in our, you know, where I was coming from versus where she was coming from are obviously stark. Yeah. But what attracted me to her was this overwhelming joy and hopefulness mm. that she had. Her approach to life was just completely joyful and it was infectious and you know coming from a world where everybody's trying to get the better thing and nobody's quite satisfied with the thing that they got and you know a lot of fighting a lot of a lot of divisionism to to be in with to be in relationship with a bunch of really dirt poor people who were happy and joyful and kind and gracious and had time to talk and had time to dance. There's, I, I wanted desperately to be back with that, you know, in that environment. In one year time, you went from rich people driving in circles. Yeah. To encountering hope in in this school. Right. With somebody with with a community that's been through things that. I mean, as you've been talking about it, I can't even my, I can't even wrap my brain around some of the things that that, that you're talking. I can't wrap I can't wrap my brain around right around circles in a lotus, right? Uh, or, or, or the other th- you know, or the other extreme either. But you've been at the edges of, mm-hmm. of both, right? Um, but it was in encountering it is it was in going to Africa that you. It sounds like you became alive again as well. Um, it was it was a process. Um, definitely, but yeah, yeah um, there was there was a moment when I decided, you know, being a good evangelical, that this was the one one for me. You know, God had sovereignly arranged all of this. It was really hard to to ignore and rationalize what had happened to me in this in this time. So the um, the our meeting with me starting to, to uh, find every excuse I could to interact with, uh, with Hope. Mm-hmm. Um, we really started falling in love with each other, but I really experienced a lot of resistance from her. Um, and it took about two months of constant interaction and trust building and conversation. Um, and I, I brought up the topic. I, I said, look, you know, I really feel like we're supposed to be together. Mm-hmm. And she said, me too, but I can't, I can't go there. Um, and I can't go there um, because uh, I need a miracle from God. And um, it was like, what miracle? You know, Africans are like, you know, very, they talk about miracles. They talk about yeah. supernatural yeah. things very freely. It makes us uncomfortable um, sometimes, but they... She's saying, I need a miracle from God. I'm like, well, okay, so tell me what miracle so I can be praying for it effectively, trying to you know, mm-hmm, just get it out mm-hmm. of her. She's like, not going to tell me. Yeah. So it goes on for about six weeks like that. And uh, finally, Valentine's Day, uh, 2010, uh, we're laying, she's laying on her bed. I'm laying on her roommate's bed. We're just looking at the ceiling. There's nowhere to go in Kigali. We don't have any money anyway. Um, and uh, she says, do you want to know why I can't marry you? And I was like, well, obviously, yes, I do mm-hmm. want to know that. Mm-hmm. And she says, I'm HIV positive. 
so I'm just devastated, mm-hmm. you know. So I get up and I go comfort her, and I'm, I'm talking to her. How? When did you know? How did you find out? All of that. So she found out she was en- engaged before got pregnant and um, was rejected by her fiance when she turned up four months pregnant and HIV positive. Um, so the reason why she didn't want to tell me is because she'd been ostracized from her entire village. Um, she'd been kicked out of the home that Compassion International built for her by her own cousin for turning up HIV positive. So she had experienced this extreme rejection. So she didn't want to experience that again. Yeah. yeah. But she decided to tell me. So we went through about three days of, of mourning together. You know, I thought I, I was running off 1980s knowledge, you know, on, on HIV. And mm-hmm. uh, I knew that you couldn't get it by sitting on a toilet seat. But beyond that, I, I wasn't really right. sure right. beyond that. So um, she, uh, she and I were in discussions and crying and all that. But I was really heartbroken. You know, I really felt like I, I m- already met about a dozen parents who are HIV positive at this point, who are going to leave their kids orphans. Uh, Hope's sister had told me she was HIV positive and said, don't tell my sister. Mm. So I already had that in my head. And this was their, they were their last remaining relatives from their family that were close. You know, so mm. I was trying to figure out how do I break the news to her that her sister's HIV positive. Now she tells me I'm HIV positive. Please don't tell my sister. Right. So I'm in the middle yeah, of that yeah. and I'm just, I mean, I'm overwhelmed. So at, at this point I'm, I'm praying and I'm just going, okay, God, you know, I don't want to understand you. I really don't understand you. These, these people are, are going to die. Their daughters are going to turn back to the system. What are we going to do? You know, like, what do you do with that? You a child sponsorship program, you know, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. it's like, right. you know, that yeah. I've already seen that that's totally yeah. corrupt and mostly bogus. Right. Right. So, um, I'm really getting angry. Mm-hmm. I'm getting in- increasingly angry. So I wanted to, I was actually sitting on her bed crying and we had hired this woman that was really poor, uh, mother of three that was living in a church to do laundry for me. So I was paying her like a buck a day to do laundry. So I was just like coming up with dirty clothes you know, right. <laughs> for her to do so I could pay her. So she came and put the clothes in the suitcase, uh, in my room. Um, and so she saw me crying. She turned away from me and they, they don't squat there. They bend over. So her butt was like right in my face. And, um, I was like, God, you know, being a good Pentecostal, I'm like, God, you know, wouldn't you, you know, if you actually had the power to heal, wouldn't you heal? If I had your power, I would, I would do it, but obviously mm-hmm. I don't. So I can't, you know, and mm-hmm. because, you know, I was like, I, I'm, so I'm mentally envisioning myself, like putting my hands on her butt. And just like Mama Robert, be healed, you know, or <laughs> uh, Robert University, you know, training there. So, um, you know, I, I'm I'm just deeply resentful of the of, of the feeling of powerlessness. Mm-hmm. And I'm I'm sitting there in that, and I'm like, if I had your power, I would do something. And then I get this this thought, you know, and it's get off your ass, you're closer. Yeah. And I'm like. Where, where did that come from? <laughs> you know? and, and so I realized I have a college degree, um, kind of an iffy college, but it's a degree, <laughs> right? Um, I have a college degree. I, I, I do know how to use the internet. You know, I, yeah. I'm, I'm connected with all these people in the West. Um, I ha- I'm here. Why the heck am I here? I am close. 
I'm right here. I know these stories. Nobody else knows these stories. I haven't dealt with a single white person that's involved in these people's lives at all. Yeah. You know, Westerner, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. Anybody that knows how to even get to a hospital or, or deal with a doctor or anything. So I jump on Google because that's what you do after you hear from God, right? <laughs> and and I, I just t- start typing in HIV, you know, AIDS, you know, that kind of stuff. So within 30 minutes, I, I learn. Um, you know, you take these pills, they're called antiretrovirals, uh, ARVs, and then um, HIV becomes as manageable as diabetes. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. we, um, that's how we got got started. I, I ran out, I said, Hope, you know, come come here, look at this, and showed her, I said, I said, you've been praying for healing for a miracle. I said, this is your healing, this is your miracle. Yeah. There's a drug out there that you and everybody we know who's HIV positive can get on, and you can live and see your grandkids. Yeah. So let's do that. So she was she was thrilled. I was thrilled. I had two weeks left in in Rwanda. We it took exactly two weeks to get her on medication. Um, we got uh, my daughter Jojo tested during that time. Mm-hmm. She turned out to be negative. Okay. That was a huge miracle. Yeah. Um, and uh, so when I left, Hope was throwing up constantly. The friend of ours who took us to the airport thought I got her pregnant because you know she's just throwing up constantly. But mm-hmm. it was because of the ARVs, the reaction okay. uh, to the ARVs. So we just went on like that, and she she gained tons of weight, uh, started really being very healthy. She had had little rashes and stuff; those all disappeared. Um, her energy level uh, was exponentially growing uh, month yeah. by month. Yeah. Um, just a vision of health, right? Yeah. So then her her CD4 test came in. She has a, a immune system of a normal person, you know, um, within a few months. Brand new life. Yeah, brand new life. So in that, we were going for, you know, I was like, great, we can get married. So I'm telling her, I don't mind that you're HIV positive. You know, mm-hmm. um, that doesn't bother me. It bothers Africans a lot. Like women get rejected all the time for turning up positive, even if the guy is the one who gave them right. <laughs> the right. HIV. Yeah. Yeah. You know, they just, they just don't want to go there. So I told her, I said, I'm good with it. I love you. And I still love you, you know, and I will mm-hmm. always love you. So she's like, that's nice and everything, but I still can't marry you. And you're like, what? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm just, you know, it's like, ah. <laughs> like, how hard does this have to be? You yeah. Know? So in uh, about a week, um, you know, there was bad exchanges of emails because I'm exposing, you know, I'm exposing the corruption that's going on in, in my mom's organization. My brother sends me this really incredibly rude email, and he hadn't been talking to me for months. And uh, you know, we're still reeling from from the fact that uh, Hope is has been able to tell me that she's positive. And so it's really intense emotional time, and I get this really rude email, and um, and I'm crying. And Hope walks in, and she's like you're crying again. Yeah. It's like, <laughs> uh, you know, the, the, the neighbors actually thought somebody had died mm. because I, mean, I was like sobbing so loudly you know, for days. Mm. And, um, and, uh, it really was like a death, you know, there yeah. was like a death of so many dreams and, and all that. So she comes in and sees me crying. And I'm like, this is the email. She reads the email and she stands up and being very practical. She says, okay, I'm going to marry you. And I'm like, So so she said, she said, you have a family, but you really don't have a family. Mm. Um, And I had prayed that I would marry an orphan. 
So in Africa, you, um, at least in African cultures that I have been exposed to, um, you don't get married without extended family to back you up. Um, the whole point of marriage is to build up your social network of friends and relations. So if you marry an orphan, you're, you're marrying into something that's valueless, right? You don't have those connections. You don't have the opportunity to move up. Because in her context, she is worthless and she would be giving nothing to you in that right, scenario. Right, right. So her fiancé, she was, she was Tutsi. Her fiancé was Hutu. That was a strike against them. Um, and uh, she was an orphan and he had family. That was another strike against them. Yeah. So then when she turned up HIV positive, he couldn't, he couldn't do the third strike. He just couldn't handle that. He loved her. He mm-hmm. really did. Still does. But um, that, that tension over the HIV is what broke their relationship. So when I came along and said, HIV doesn't matter, doesn't matter that you're a single mom, you know, it doesn't matter that you're poor and I'm, I'm rich, you know, relatively, sure. um, you know, none of that stuff matters to me. You know, that was, that was very romantic to her. Um, but the fact that, that I accepted her as an orphan was, was the most significant thing. And then when she realized I too, really had no family to draw on anymore that that I, I was finished um then that just that that won her over so we got married um by the end of the year in in December and you found each other in your uh, yeah 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 hmm. and now you're here and and uh well so yeah we started the hatchery we started a ministry for HIV positive women um, single moms. So we started doing that. So we started getting on medication. Then we figured out once they're on medication, they get hungry and they need to eat. So we taught them how to farm. So we have an organic farming little, you know, thing. And then we realized they're ostracized from their church environment. So we have to give them a church that's safe for them. So we started a house church and, um, and then, then we learned something that most Westerners don't actually know when they go work in Africa, which is you don't solve Africans problems. Um, there's too many of them, what you do, too many Africans and too many problems, um, that we see in the West, what you do is do what Africans do, which is build relationships. So we, instead of having a traditional ministry model, we just opened up our home to people that we trusted and loved and just invited them in. So we have Tutsis, we have Hutus, we have Nkoli, we have, uh, uh, Uganda, we have all the tribal, you know, many tribal groups mixed in. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have five different languages in our house church and, you know, even just in the space of our living room, mm-hmm. we have five different languages we have to deal with. Um, but w- what we focus on is, is, um, the teachings of Christ, the Sermon on the Mount. And what we're trying to do is detox them all from rejection, prosperity, gospel, rejection. Right. They are the least of these. So in the prosperity gospel, that means they don't have enough faith. Right. So they, they feel ultimately rejected. So we're trying to give them a foundation in scripture that brings out their identity of being, you know, the embodiment of Christ. Uh, the widows and orphans are the most treasured in the kingdom of God. So, Paul, you've come so far in your, you know, and I hear about your journey with regard to faith in life and you just so generously shared your story with us and I really really truly appreciate that thanks yeah. yeah I'm yeah. really happy to to be able to do that it's, and it's, uh, 
and it's a story to be continued in so many ways. Yeah, it is continuing. My yeah. my wife is involved in a we're involved in five years of an immigration process where we just got denied uh, our visa uh, last week, and we're we're working to get her here. Um, it's one thing for a white guy to tell tell an African story; it's another thing for an African woman yeah. to tell her own story. So, um, what we're looking forward to creating is a community in the United States that can partner up with our community in Africa and build uh, bonds of love and trust and um, work on African style, work on solving problems together um, as they come up rather through relationships rather than um, doing the remote. You know, um, we like to do our missions work like we fight our wars by drone, you know. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. we send in like the drone missionary and drop the, the well, drop the, you know, the magic shoes that change sizes or, you know, mm-hmm. uh, I don't know if you've seen those, uh, you know, the, the buy one pair of shoes and get another pair of shoes for some poor African or, you, oh, know, right. yeah. you, know, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, yeah. like all those nifty solutions that we get all excited about. Uh-huh. Um, you know, that's, that's our Western mind, but they, they like relationships. And so what we're trying to do is build real community here that will partner up with our African community mm-hmm. and, and get to know each other's names and walk through life together. You know, so Africans have so much to give us. Right. Um, you know, a sense of community, a sense of, of, of unity that we don't have. And yeah. we have a lot of material um, resources and education and things that they don't, they don't have. And so we're, we're, we're in a process of bringing those together in our work. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. I really appreciate it. I really appreciate you and having I, me And on. I do look forward to maybe someday uh, interviewing both you and Hope. Uh, oh, absolutely. That would be, that would be yeah. amazing. And then she could, she could check you. Like all good wives will check their husbands. Oh yeah, she's she's say. like the, the way better other ninety percent. Right? <laughs> <laughs> so, thanks, thanks, Paul. All right, see you guys. Thanks so much for spending some time with us and listening to Paul's story. If you'd like to hear more about what uh, Paul is up to, you can check out uh, the website at hopepositiveafrica.com. Just want to thank Paul Phillips for joining us uh, a month ago. You know, we got to the end of that story and that long conversation and realized that we had only scratched the surface. I, I even asked him, I asked him once we had stopped recording, hey, when does the movie come out? And he said, you know, don't know where the story is going to go from here. So as with all of us, his story is to be continued and I can't wait to hear more. Yeah, absolutely. It was so fun to talk to him. Absolutely. It was great. Um, so yeah, thanks for thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to Paul's story. We uh Hope to see you maybe in a week or in a week or so at uh, the live event. Yeah, the live event. Don't forget about it. It's November twenty second at seven o'clock at at Studio three twenty four in downtown Rochester. Would love to see you there. Or again, tune in online. Watch for information about it on social media on our website. Share it. Make sure that you check us out on iTunes as well and give us uh, some good ratings and some good comments. And and we'd love to hear from you. Thanks again for listening to the Sandbox Cooperative Podcast. I'm Chris. And I'm Dave. See ya. Bye-bye. Please watch your step as you exit the Sandbox. 